0: Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. I am Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And we are back with another Spy Master interview. A bit of a treat for you and a bit of a a sequel to an episode we did just last year on the film Spy Game. Cam, who do we have joining
1: us? Yes, we are being joined by Michael Frost Beckner, who wrote as you said, Scott, the movie Spy Game. And I felt like this was a good time to release this interview. With last week, we talked about Ridley Scott and Body of Lies. Now we can talk a little bit more about Tony Scott and Spy Game. And uh, I'm, of course, Agent Scott. So we have all of the
0: Scots represented this, uh, this week. <laughs> I feel so left out. Uh, yes, and so you should. But uh, yeah, without further ado, let's throw to the interview, Mr. Michael Frost Beckner himself. Cam, roll it. And joining us now on the show, our second time looking at Operation Dinner Out, it is the screenwriter of the fantastic film Spy Game. It is Mr. Michael Frost Beckner. Hello, sir. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing just great. Thank you for having me and thank you for uh, doing this film twice. It's uh, it's quite an honor. I I like your show quite a bit.
0: Well, that's that's the honor, really. That's very nice of you to say. And, you know, it's it's always a treat to speak to people who actually make the films that we sit and talk about every week because we love them so much to sit around talking about them. But you're the ones who actually make it happen. So it's always a pleasure.
2: Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. It, uh, it, it's been a, quite, a, quite a nice run uh, in Hollywood for me. I, I've enjoyed it and, and, and like talking about it
1: and i can say just you know as someone who sees the downloads every week for episodes spy game had a lot of support so there's a big audience for that movie for sure
2: yeah it has it has uh, taken care of me for a long time we uh, as writers have our ups and downs with our paycheck cuz you know you, you work on a film you get a nice big chunk of money but then you work on the film and so you make money but your future is kind of guaranteed with that you know with the residual and and spy game's done done quite well for me that and uh sniper the yeah the first film yeah um which they've now made the ninth one they just that thing just <laughs> keeps turning. i think it's like you know you got the harry potters and the marvels that have all the franchises but um it's one of those ones that like direct sequels nine of them is is unheard of do you watch them all no no i uh the first <laughs> few and then the last one or maybe the one before was pretty good Um, They consult with me when they start them, just kind of with the characters and that sort of thing. I own the characters from the original film. I I have that kind of different from other writers, but I always did um, only original material. I did a lot of adaptations for other people, but um, my own stuff is originals. And I've always hoping to write my own Star Wars one day, which never did. I've always kept my characters in the world. Take a little less money and, and keep the right. So they always have to consult with me, but I'm always like, you guys seem to know what you're doing. Just just keep it good. Don't don't kill them off in a weird way, because I'm, you know, they they appear in my books. So right. Um anyway, yeah. But uh yeah, so so yeah, the the, uh, but spy game has um it's become something of a bit of a, a classic and open big the problem was the problem was 9-11 and and um you know that that concerned a lot of people with releasing it and, um, you know, just jumping into it a little bit, the segment that takes place in Beirut, mm-hmm. um, which was one of the, the changes that was done to my original script, we can go with sort of a, you you guys covered a lot of that and I'll, we can talk about it, but it had been originally about the Marine barracks bombing in Beirut. Mm-hmm. All the operations were actual operations. And that was that they changed it apropos of well, nothing as far as I'm concerned, maybe budget, um to the thing with the Egyptian and the uh, arms dealer, they they made it smaller. I think. the Marines got founding much bigger sequence, um, but I think that was actually pretty good with the timing because something like that would have been, I think, too incendiary around 9-11. Hmm. But um, you know, it came out at that time and um uh but it's it's chugged along all these years. So yeah, I'm pretty pleased with it.
0: Well, I I do want to get into sort of talking about spy game and sort of taking it to pieces and figuring out the nuts and bolts of the film. With yeah. You. But I, I, I do just want to cast our view back a little bit further than spy game and get an idea of what led you to spy game. I mean, you, know you, I, I was listening to your chat with Chris Carr early today on secrets and spies podcast. I reckon everyone should check out that interview as well. Wonderful show. And, talking about sort of your early days and deciding to become a screenwriter or a novelist, you were going back and forth on that and what you were doing in school. Could you just walk us through sort of the brief of why you chose to go down the path of screenwriting and eventually becoming a novelist and author as well?
2: I, well, I, you know, I fell into it because I did study novel writing um, at USC in Southern California under T.C. Boyle, who's an amazing literary giant. Um, And what happened was, is I decided... That I didn't want to write a novel for my thesis. Um, thinking, you know, big fat 400 pages, I got to type full margins I'd write a lot of screenplays. And I noticed that, you know, to get it right, it's got to be 120 pages or less, and the margins are real narrow. <laughs> so I petitioned a master's degree, because it was undergraduate, I petitioned for a master's degree in screenwriting, because they didn't offer one in undergraduate at the time. And I think they just looked, well, he's going to do master's degree work for an undergraduate degree. We'll let him do it. And I thought I was getting away with something. Turned out I had a proficiency for writing screenplays. And, and um, when I sort of went into the work world, uh, I got a job in the publicity department at Walt Disney. And that was still back in the days when the movie poster would go out with the press kit and the little black and white stills, you know, that would be stapled to the marquee. I'm the guy that wrote the caption on the stills, you know? So it would be, you know, uh, Br'er Fox and Br'er Bear throw, Br'er Bri- Rabbit into the Briar Patch, Walt <laughs> Disney 1956, stamp, you know? I mean? And I do that, but I was working for Barry Levinson on a film called Tin Men and uh, Danny DeVito, Richard Dreyfuss, Barbara Hershey. And my job was all the still photography coming off the set. I'd have to X out the ones where the eyes were closed or someone was looking funny and just send them back that, I guess it's, it felt like it was a job a chimp could do, but he, he, he sent, sent me a note and said, you, you've really made my job a lot easier. You have a real good eye for this. And, mm. and he, I went out to lunch with him and he offered me a job as his writing assistant. Um, there's a few little details in between. But I, so I did that. My first writing in film then was on Good Morning Vietnam. And if you remember the film, there's a teletype that keeps you up to date with what's happening in the war. Yeah. And it's a, you know, it's in some, some of them are a little bit odd things. And my job was to write all the, the teletype traffic. So that was my first thing. Then there was a writer's strike and we were just about to start pre-production on Rain Man and he wanted to rewrite the entire thing, but he couldn't work because of the strike. So the workaround was he would dictate all the scenes in the dialogue I'd take dictation, which I had to quickly go and learn how to write shorthand, and then I'd type it all up, and he'd just red pen it. So that's where I really got my screenwriting education, because I'd turn in the pages in the morning, you know, no, 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 this is terrible, oh, this is pretty good. And and in that way, I learned how to write screenplays. So jump ahead a few years, I'd written Sniper, I'd written a whole bunch of Barry Levinson-esque romantic comedies and and, and quirky things, and they didn't like any of them. But he, but uh, they bought Sniper for um, Tristar Pictures, and it was all ready to go. But the head of uh, Tristar said, "Pull the pull the plugs, to put on the brakes." He said, um, "We don't have Marines in Panama. What what this doesn't make?" I "Well, just give it six months. We're going to be in Panama." And and um, I was pressing enough to to kind of put the pieces together. We invaded, and then that came out. And that launched my career. I worked with them uh, for another year or two in development, working on, um, you know, some of their films. Um, But once that took off, I decided to just stick with the screenwriting. Mm. Um, And opportunity and maybe talent met. And I sort of made a big splash writing three very important, not, not important as in content, but important as the nature of screenwriting in the business. Um, screenplays that consecutively each sold for the highest amount an original screenplay had ever sold for. Um, competing in there with Joe House and Shane Black and stuff. And and that really planted my flag. And so I became, and they were action mm-hmm. Um That became um, sort of my calling card. And so for the period of 1991 to 1995, any action comedy out there the studios would send me the script and say can you can you bump this up a bit so you know i get a lethal weapon script or a diehard three i go you don't you don't honestly don't need any more action in this thing it's, it's wall <laughs> action what's not working is your story's not real good in your character you know stay away from the characters you you're, you're the action guy don't touch the character that kind of annoyed me mm. uh so i took about eight months off Um, and I did, I decided, you know what, I'm going to go to the novel writing. And I wrote, uh, as a book. And well, eight months, I had a kid on the way, suddenly I needed more money. So I lopped off the ending of the book, the manuscript, and converted it into a screenplay, which is the film that sold. Um, Mm. but what happened was, is no one, no one liked it. The studios were, were absolutely, they said, it's, it's all sitting around a room. The main characters never meet. It's flashbacks and and it's narrated. This is never going to work. And, and um, of course, if you want to make it into an action comedy, you know they offered me quite a bit of money. I no, not going to do that. And then my agent, I said to my agent, I said, look, here's what I'd like to do. Since we didn't auction it off for you know a million dollars or whatever. Um, I think people would like to see one more time Paul Newman and Robert Redford mm-hmm. and the roles were written. I'd written that with them in mind, Paul Newman got involved and he said he was into it, but it took a while for me to set it up for them. Even with the Redford wasn't attached yet. Um, it took another year to get beacon pictures involved. And by that point, Newman said, you know what? my, bio is a little bit fudged. I'm about five years older than everyone thinks I am. This is maybe going to be too much for me, but maybe Bob could play the role you envisioned for me, which was a little bit more like Newman and the Hmm. Verdict. And so that's when Redford got involved and he jumped at it. He loved it. Uh, And so Beacon had envisioned this as a small, as a real small scale, intimate, you know, uh, almost indie film with Hmm. Redford. And, so the deal they made is because they didn't want to pay my fee, which was pretty exorbitant at the time. Um, they said, you can keep all the rights. You can keep the rest of that book. Um, you can keep, you know, all we have is this script, this movie. And if we want to remake the script, you know, we get a sequel. We Not even necessarily a sequel, but a remake. Sure. Um, and so that was the deal we made. And, and I just put it in a drawer. Right? So I had... I had the world and the characters and all that. And and it worked out pretty well because the promise they made is we're going to do your script. Well, okay, we're going to do your script. But then the director they got to go with the indie film idea was uh, Mike Van Diem. And he'd come Mm -hmm. off, he'd just won the Academy Award for character for best foreign film, uh, which I liked. A pretty good movie. Uh, And then I think the year before he'd won or maybe two, an Academy Award for best short. And I sat down with him. He really thought he was the next Orson Welles. And he (laughs) came in and lectured me and I don't know anything about the CIA. I don't know anything about this. I'm a moron and a fool. And I kind of said, yeah, I said, well, how do you know? Well, I read this book and I'm like, yeah, that's put out by the CIA Office of Publications. Of course you think that's what it is. I grew up knowing a lot of these people. I didn't write the the book or the screenplay out of, you know, thin air to make up a good story. I wanted to write about people. You know, they tell you when you, especially studying novel writing, write what you know. Well, I knew a lot of old spies. Um, So anyway, but they, but, you know, the guy won the Academy Award. uh, Redford approved him. I stepped back and then that went two years in a direction. I mean, it was two guys. In a hotel in Warsaw, they didn't even need the same names because they were different ages, it was all completely different. Peeping through a hole at a Russian defector, and there was no flashbacks, no nothing. It was a real intimate to enter in a hotel room, and Ed, none of the plot was there. Well, that didn't work, obviously. That wasn't going to go anywhere. He went off in a huff, and um, and then they got um, what's the guy's name who, who did the uh. The rewrite. Um, I could look at the postal
1: what David uh, Arata um, David
2: Arata, David Arata. yeah. and uh, so they brought him in and he took that went back to my script, but but developed it in his own way. and and like like I, I, he's the one that did the um, the sequence in Lebanon. Um, the mm-hmm. opening sequence with the reincarnation pill and the electrocution and stuff he he changed that from the real the real thing that I'd had in there that was more of a, uh, based on an actual operation. Um, and the scene, that seems pretty good. I, I like the scene, it's a little hokey, but uh, it's, it certainly has the suspense and, and engages you in the film right off the bat in a good way. So he, he made those changes. And then that lingered another year. Um, they got Pitt based on that script. So Brad Pitt came on board there, um, which was kind of interesting because he had been the original cast in Sniper in the Billy Zane role. Oh. then he went off. He said, can you give me six months to make a movie with Bob Redford? Um, River runs through it. And then we never saw him again. <laughs> he was a huge star after that. Uh, but uh, so anyway, then it's all ready to go. So the, and Redford reads it and says, no, this isn't the script. Where's the script that I wanted to do? That, you know, uh, Paul had sent me. So I know I didn't actually know that was going on. I got a call from Tony Scott who I'd not met before. I'd worked a few times with Ridley, trying to get projects off the ground, nothing that we ever made. um so I knew Ridley very uh fairly well and uh, Tony had my number. he called me uh, and and I said, well Tony, it's great. it's three years later. I'm glad you're making the movie. You're gonna do a great job. it's great. it's good perfect for you. he goes, no, you don't understand we're going we're throwing all that out and we're going back to your original script and so that's that's how the movie happened. That's how it came together um and it, it, you know, the other thing they changed was um, Catherine McCormick in the film, Elizabeth mm-hmm. Hadley, had been uh, Asian. It, it had mm. been, she'd been Chinese. So the idea that the Chinese wanted her made more sense than the, oh, she's right. in Beirut, but the Chinese want a kid that kind of was all shoehorned in and a little bit didn't make sense. However, she did a great job. The the reason behind that, as I learned later, was just box office. They didn't at the time uh, didn't believe that an Asian female Asian star could carry that carry a role that anyone wanted to see. Um, Jump forward to the Academy Awards, and certainly Best Actress went to an Asian star. So I think people are just fine with Asians, but uh, uh, at the time had to be a Caucasian woman for Brad Pitt. Uh, right now, when I did as I've gone on and written it, I've actually kept her as Elizabeth Hadley. I kind of like what she did with Rawl all and, and, and used that. So that did change my books a little bit, interestingly
0: enough. Well, there's there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and I think the first thing to do is, because I suppose it wasn't really addressed. You spoke about it again with Chris Carr's interview, uh, but I, I suppose... When you were writing Spy Game, when you came up with the concept of writing Spy Game, what made you want to write a spy film? Of all the films you could write, you, you've written Cut For Island," you've written Sniper by this point, why a spy movie? What interests you about that sort of area of, of films?
2: What interested me was uh, growing the, that write what you know thing. And, mm. you know, I grew up loving James Bond movies. Who does it? It was like going on a vacation, you know, around the world. Every summer, a couple summers, one to come out, like on vacation um but through the context of my of my own life there's something that i said on his thing i can't repeat but i have had contact with people in that um in the intelligence business um at you know at family gatherings since i was little um at you know um weddings that, that you know that sort of thing and i said t- as a young my i can tell you this my grandfather um before the CIA. Uh, but his, his day-to-day job skipping world war II, was, uh, he ultimately was the head of narcotics and intelligence for the state of California. And so there were a lot of interesting, um, people that would show up for Christmas Eve. And if you can imagine in the sixties and seventies, I mean, the early seventies, I guess, all the men would be out in the the what would you call it the service porch back behind the kitchen where the bar was you know christmas yeah. eve and the kids and everyone's in front they're drinking i go there and listen to their stories and a lot of these people um were spooks of of some nature or another state or larger government um and i got to know a lot of them and then as my life went on other people of, of a younger generation were involved you know coming as guests to to um Family things, or I'd be invited. I end up meeting these people, and I kind of thought to myself as I set out to write Spy Game. What people don't really know is they're not James Bond. You know, there's, um, you know, there's a, there's a deep patriotism that goes through them. There's a, oftentimes that's equal to being very jaded. Um, there's a lot of divorce, a lot of alcoholism, um, and then a lot of people that that have come through that. So when I wrote it, I didn't really, you know, good, good plot and shoot shoot 'em up. I've written a lot of shoot ups and a lot of plots. I didn't think anyone, I didn't really think the plot itself was what was important, but the Cold War itself and who these people are that kind of went through it. And, and so I based Muir on kind of some of those, those gentlemen that I knew uh, all through my life growing up. And then there was one, one guy who was my uh pe coach when i you know phys ed coach uh in uh, middle school and he was a vietnam vet uh and he he did he led a lot of backpacking trips since the 70s so backpacking and granola we're in and we do the john muir trail in the high sierras out here in california um and we take these two-week treks, and he you know through the school um we do that he um you know, you didn't have cell phones or streaming. You couldn't just, you know, the sunset. You could watch something. was nothing to watch. The campfire was a big thing, and he'd tell these stories. And and with him, he'd bring on these different trips, some of his buddies that he knew in Vietnam. And so me and the young, the other young guys that were, were with us, they were teenagers, some girls. Um, we just listened, rapt, uh, in rapture, uh, to these these stories about you know his his time in Vietnam, which was a little bit off the grid. Um, I didn't think much of it, but I did like the way he was able to spin a yarn, kind of the way Nathan Muir does. And I sort of liked that he was the coolest guy. He was that cool. So, what you see, Nathan Muir is, is as far as his attitude and the way he approaches things and, and tells stories, I was really channeling um that coach that I had. Um turned out that, you know, later he I, I ran into him many years later and he said, you know, he, he, I, we reacquainted and, and he said, you wrote And He goes, He goes, that's my all time favorite movie. And I yeah. said, it's, it's about you. He goes, but how did you know? I go, I don't know what? He goes, I told everyone that I was, you know, in an army, a guy, a grunt in the army. How did you know I was in Laos in the CIA? Were you? I didn't really actually know that. And and it turned out that the guy I based it on was really the guy I based it on. I had just put the pieces together subconsciously. I suppose I have no idea, because um, he never said it. But you know, some of that stuff that he that he said and and it further explored in in the the books is that guy. And so he he's is. Uh, so it, it all kind of circled around back to to what I did. The other thing was, is Tom Boyle at uh, uh, University. Um, you know, he'd suggested, he said, when you write, Michael, what you're best at and, and what you should lean into, because you have a real unique way of doing this, you like to write stories about stories. You, 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 all, your, all your best writing is about someone telling the story and how that person develops and we get to know them by the way they tell a story, what details they use, what they leave out, what they use the story to accomplish. And uh, so, anyway, I leaned into that because if that was my strongest writing, and I was going to a first write a book, that's what I leaned into. So that's kind of how Spy Game became Spy Game. Um, and and I just I, I really felt that really we hadn't seen a movie about what it is to to become a spy, what it is to be a spy, how they look upon each other, and maybe even look at you know the the earlier version of themselves in the in the younger spy. I, I'm always. You know, I'm always writing that older, younger father, son kind of story, which I'm attracted to and I seem to have had success writing.
1: When you are going through the process of writing the screenplay, are you showing some of the people, some of these contacts you have in your life with spy experience for maybe like input or is it something where you're just going to kind of write it and then they can see it when it comes out?
2: No, no. I I, I always stay in touch with with, with everyone. I'm, I'm not someone that holds my cards all that close. I'd never make a good spy. I can't. You know, I don't keep things secret. It it always makes it better. Even if I go exactly opposite of what they say it is, I need to know what it is so I can make that seem real. One of the things that I've always enjoyed with Spy Game is, after Spy Game, my association with with the the CIA increased quite a bit. Um, And maybe it had before and I hadn't really known what was going on. But I've always been, and they've opened their doors to me, especially for my series, The Agency, uh, because I, I portrayed it correctly and I portrayed them the way they are. And, and you know, again, it's the way they are as people. That's what they really, you know, one thing one of, one of them said, uh, I was at headquarters and he, he was complimenting the movie. He said, you know, every time we show up in a movie, it's the ex-CIA guy that wants to murder someone or we're assassins. And And, you know, I was good friends... Uh, with Tony Mendez, who Argo's about, and mm-hmm. his wife, he was chief of disguise. And then she, after he retired, was chief of disguise there. He was, she's still a very close friend of my family friend, we we do 4th of July's together. Um, and, uh, you know, the one thing he said, you know, and I, very early on in our relationship, but I, it's kind of, it shows up in Spy Game, is, um, you know, we get caught with a gun we go to prison forever. We get denied and we go to prison. We don't use gun, guns. We don't. We use a pack of cigarettes. a stick sick of gum. That's what we use. We don't, it's not, you know, and if you think about it, we don't see a lot of trains getting derailed with shootouts and Paris having car chases and machine guns. That really just doesn't really happen. They make great movies. I, I love all that stuff. But it's not really what espionage is and what spies are. And so they always keep me grounded on that. Um, and 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 still still do but but the thing is, is I do relish the most the compliments or the reviews I'll read online from my books from former CIA officers saying wow it's just this was it i don't he wasn't there but he got it and that that always is is the highest compliment when you're writing about something that's real
1: one of the things i think your movie does very well is balancing the tradecraft all the explanation of espionage with a movie that's just genuinely entertaining and there's a lot of you know material out there say like a tinker taylor soldier spy that you can say that really captures what it feels like to be a spy you know like john Carré really understands that yeah. but that is not going to pull in a massive opening weekend audience mm-hmm. whereas i think like spy game is very good at balancing both of those demands and i'm just really curious how you pulled that off because i've seen very few do it
2: but, well thank you you know it's I guess uh, although I was thumbing my nose out at it a minute ago it comes from writing action comedies it comes from writing real mainstream uh plot driven movie moment stuff um and and so I, I'm able to do that you know the thing is you want to show the trade craft but I can't stand training scenes in movies You know, you watch a Three Musketeers or a Zorro or something, and they're what they're going to train. Let's see the -the on-the-job training. I want to see on-the-job training. (laughs) So I tried to do that with Spy Game, make it feel like it was on-the-job training. What makes it work is we know that Muir is already running a con on it. You know, from the uh, from picking him up off that train and isolation, and you know, and that whole thing in Germany. So you're already sort of feeling. Yeah, they're growing together really well, but boy, it's all based on a real flimsy, phony setup, the, the idea. So I think that keeps the suspense alive in that sequence. Tony Scott did a fabulous job with that sequence. The music, the you know, sometimes I write music cues in my scripts. I didn't in that one. I liked his music cues because they told us the years. I like the, um, the way the camera goes. Any isolated moments, my script was a lot longer. And, and so his is better. His version is better than mine. Um, but isolated the moments that were the pure trade craft moments. One thing that uh, I, you might find amusing is the scene in the bar where he talks about scotch. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, so the movie comes out and a package arrives at my door and I open it up and it's from Johnny Walker and it is a presentation box. It says Michael Frost Beckner's spy game. And it's this, uh whiskey that they don't sell it is private reserve whiskey from the head he goes you've done more for our business uh you know <laughs> since uh Ian Fleming said shake and not stirred with a vodka martini <laughs> and uh and uh so it, it was that but yeah, again that's amusing because of the of the head nod to well all those men in the back porch of my grandmother's drank copious amounts of scotch just that's that was it no one drank martinis um and uh, but it, it's kind of like that. It, it, it's balancing. So you got to put humor into it. You got to you got to move it quickly. And and it can't it has to have another meaning behind it, I think, than just now he's going to train. It, he, and so that was the it's, it's building. I want to build a father son relationship built on, um, you know, sand mm. where he was tricked into the whole thing from the very beginning.
0: My first follow up question from that is how did the whiskey taste? Did you get it? Did you Did you ever pop the top?
2: I did. You know what? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. It's for a long time. It didn't get touched. And then I one. I just. I gotta. I gotta know what this tastes like. I'll just yeah. have a little bit. And it tasted. It was a blended whiskey. It tasted like a uh, like a cask draw single malt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was. It was. It was astonishing. And then it was pretty much gone in a month. It was. Mm-hmm. I just. I mean, what the point i mean this is good whiskey and uh so i yeah uh, yeah i still got the bottle in the, in the presentation case but it's empty and i, I you know maybe i was
0: gonna if, ask if you kept it yeah 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 yeah
2: absolutely absolutely i for a long time it looked really nice but what's the point it's like a, a cigar you know you get a, a box of cuban cigars as a gift or something you put them in your humidor and never smoke them what's the point of having them i, I don't know whiskey's to drink
0: well, you're waiting for a day that's never coming. You might as well enjoy it while you're
2: there. Right. Right. Exactly. And so, so I did, and it was fabulous. It was, it was really quite good. I was uh, uh, quite into uh, single malt scotches for a long time, and, and so that did hold me off from you know saying it was blend, you know what was it forty years aged blended. You know, it's probably gross. It was gross. It was the very best stuff. <laughs>
0: Well-earned, I would say. Now, when you are in the process of putting the script together, and obviously you mentioned the, the Paul Newman and Robert Redford coming in and then eventually Brad Pitt. Before the process of casting even happened, before those names were involved, when you were writing the script, did you see and did you envision any actors in the roles uh, that weren't cast?
2: I, I never do. I, I think I wrote, I did one, I've written for a lot of actors, but one thing that was kind of funny, I wrote for Eddie Murphy one. And um, I tried to get Eddie Murphy. It was a, he wanted to do, what really happened is Paramount wanted him to do Beverly Hills Cop, whatever it was with the roller coasters, whichever one three. that was. He didn't, three. He did not want to do it. He wanted to do a Western. I'd been known for writing Westerns and a number of Western scripts that weren't made, but, you know, that's how I make my living is writing, not making movies in the movie business. And so he, he was, uh, I was known as a guy to do Westerns brought me in to write this Western comedy for him. And it was, it was going to be pretty good. It was him. And this would be in like 93, him, Whoopi Goldberg, uh, Arsenio Hall. It was right after the one that I think he did with him before. Um, Timothy Dalton, uh, Daniel Stern. It was pretty good. It was kind of like a Magnificent Seven, you know, kind of thing. But they said, write it for Eddie, and which I did. And um, uh, he hated it. He absolutely <laughs> hated it. Uh, so, but they did hold him at Paramount long enough while I was writing for him to make that movie. They go, We bought you your Western, now we make this. So uh, I held him in place for the studio. So I was a, a good studio uh, walk there. But um, so I really, I, I try and, I, I don't see who they are at all. Um, I have t- had some idea that I wanted a Redford Newman thing, but I wasn't. If you write strictly to that, you're going to miss the mark. It had to be something that could be something else. And, um, you know, I don't know. It's, uh, it's kind of all facets of me in a sense. You know, even when I write women, they're all, you know, it's a facet of my personality that I'm trying to express. The, uh, um, I'd always thought, you know, I, I'd always thought if it wasn't Newman, and Newman was the, was the, was the target. Um, and now I think Brad Pitt... You know, makes the movie as much as Redford in that you just needed that. It would have made even less. It made quite a bit of money, but it would have made less money if it had been just two old guys. The timing and the timeline is a little hokey in the film. How is Brad Pitt in Vietnam there? And then he's about the same age after the fall of the Iron Curtain. You don't notice in the movie. You don't notice. I did. But um, they made it work. um, But they really were a little bit closer in age. Um, But it was... uh, at one point, I there was a director attached who was dying to have um, Gene Hackman play the Redford role, which would have been interesting. I, I Redford is is you know is perfect, but you know that that was a but I never I, I have to steer away. You you do archetypes, but I write that character really well. I've done that kind of character, that aged uh, guy with that set of you know personal issues and. And hang-ups, you know, I, I've made a living writing that character a
1: lot. And I'm curious, you know, Robert Redford, amazing storyteller, you know, director in his own right. Yeah. When he comes on, like, does he have suggestions about what he sees as, like, maybe would help the character in any way? Like, how does it evolve with his involvement?
2: Well, my experience with him was not so, uh, not that close because the script was pretty much finished. He was more interested in making it a Robert Redford character who Redford is. So mm. like I said before, it was more like Paul Newman and the verdict. So there was a lot more alcohol. Um, he was smoking the whole time. That's why he has a pack of cigarettes in the office with the boss. Cause he's been smoking the whole damn time. And they keep telling me to put out his cigarettes. He's like, I, it's my last day. You didn't fire me. Um, so he was, he was worried about that. He was worried about, um, he didn't want, there was much more voiceover. He didn't, he said, I'm more the strong, silent type, Less less dialogue for me, so he knows his strengths really really well. And now for me, it's like I don't want to change all that. But you know, he, it's him now. It's not me
1: anymore.
2: Mm. Um, it's with film. It's you've got to collaborate. You've got to make you. You have to, and and you have to trust that the actor knows that he Redford knows he knows what he's doing in every moment. He can do more with his eyes than I can write six great lines. I mean, he, he can just do that with a look. And and so that's kind of what his in, involvement with the script was. But he was always taken by it from the beginning. And it wasn't until it got to production that he decided, I need to cut some of this stuff. This isn't serving the way I'm playing the character. Um, so that, that was kind of that.
0: And You mentioned... The, one of the the original director, Mike Van Dien, being involved, and then the script kind of got passed off for a while. Did you have much time working with Mike and did it did the script go for any sort of
2: evolutions in that time period no um they uh they paid me a big chunk of money not to work with
0: Mike right
2: The studio paid me a lot of money Mike uh, again wanted it to be a completely different movie he was. Uh, He felt he was more of an expert on the CIA and and Langley, even though he's from Mm. Copenhagen or wherever he's from, um, than I. And so he he rewrote it from page one as an entirely different film. And um, he was very adamant that his film was the best spy script ever written. So when it came down to it, he worked on it for about a year. And they said, well, could you maybe go a little bit? back to Beckner's script. No, this is, this is the definitive spy movie. Trust me. It's going to be the greatest one ever made. And having the two guys in the hotel room, you know, for the whole length of the movie in a small hotel room is going to be the most drama you've ever seen. No one agreed with him. Sadly, I didn't work with him. He didn't like me. Um, he was, uh, he's quite an auteur and he had that auteur sensibility that, um, you know, he's carried him on in, with his career. That's what he wants to do. It didn't. It didn't work out in Hollywood. He didn't um, ultimately do it.
1: And when David Arada is working on a draft himself, are you in communication with him, or are you very like hands off when he is working on that?
2: He he did did his own thing. Um, we didn't talk at all. He you're supposed to when you rewrite. Uh, uh, some writers do it. Some don't. You usually call the previous writer. I did. Mm-hmm the night manager for Sidney Pollock, And um, um, and the first writer was, Jesus, the name's slipping my tongue, wrote Chinatown, Robert Town, Robert yeah. Town. So I get hired for that. You're damn well sure I'm going to call Robert Town and go what's the story with this thing? We, you know, that one lingered for a long time and they ended up making it into television. But some people do that, some don't. He never called me so... Not really my place to call him. It was sort of you know do your own thing, you know, and 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 he did, and he resurrected it. He 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 had his own vision for it, um, and 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 it took it out. It took it closer to mine, and away from the Warsaw Hotel room, the Holiday Inn in Warsaw, of Mike. Bendy so he really is, and that kept Redford interested. I think mm-hmm. without David Arata Redford would have just said you know forget it. And um, yeah, and so that, then he came in, and then then it came, swirled around back to me a couple of years later.
0: The other major sort of casting coup, which we briefly spoken about, was Brad Pitt. Now, famously, he was originally going to do Born Identity, but turned it down to come and do Spy Game.
2: Yeah, I didn't know that till I heard your thing. I didn't know that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> really, well, that's, that's, yeah, what, that uh, that's what the internet me. says, so uh, I, I yeah, no, that's... I think that's
2: true. I think it, it it's uh, I think as the years gone on and, and the the Jason Bourne stuff has gotten so big, that story keeps getting uh, repeated. and I think it's a true story. Um I don't know. um while I did work a little bit with Redford uh, enough to to know him and 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 work with him on, you know, because he came on in the beginning. Yeah. it came later. He came later, and um, uh, I think I, I'd only be guessing though, but I think it's his relationship with Bob. Um, I think they had a good relationship. Um, Brad likes the, the politics of stuff, and this I think felt a little more real. And he he really when he did talk about it on the press tour, he was much more interested in the Cold War and geopolitics to some extent mm-hmm. than I don't think the Jason Bourne stuff had. I mean, uh that was, you know, more of a, it's sort of in between maybe a spy game and a James Bond. It kind of rides the middle there yeah. of 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 the spy thriller genre.
0: Well, Cam and I have spoken about this before, but I don't think Jason Bourne would have had the legacy it's gone on to have had it been with Brad Pitt. I
2: agree 100%. I, I, I think that's, that's. I think, you know, people underestimate Brad's acting, but his acting is really good. But it's it is because there's a sensitivity to him Mm-hmm. Um, a, a, a like a softness. Even when he's a tough guy, he's a, there's a, a sweetness to him that I don't think Jason Bourne has. Mm-hmm. You know, and Matt Damon, even when he's sensitive, you can see violence in his eyes. Mm-hmm. And you know, what do you look at? What legends of the fall? You know, that's he gets fairly violent in that. And he's you know, and that but he's a sensitive, he's sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what attracts Brad to that. And I don't think I think. Matt Damon is the I couldn't imagine it, you know, without him, actually, without Matt Damon. He makes those movies.
1: Yeah, definitely. And you don't even know if does Brad Pitt do four of them even like to have an ongoing franchise? No,
2: right. No, his his taste goes in all different directions. And and, um, you know, he gets engaged in something and that's all he's going to do. And it's it's remarkable that he did all those uh, Ocean's movies. And um you know, but I think that's a great group of people who all liked each other. So it was fun to do. It seemed
1: like a but... The behind the scenes seemed like it was an absolute joy to make those movies. <laughs> yeah, it seemed like something I'd like
2: to be part of. Yeah, it, yeah. it looked like a lot of fun.
1: I, I had a question about Tony Scott, who's such a visually dynamic filmmaker across, you know, from the beginning of his career right to the end. And when he comes on and he's going through the script and everything, does he have visual ideas he wants to incorporate into the screenplay that excite him?
2: You know, that's a good question. The uh, Yeah, he sees things in that way. He, he wants to see a scene. He was very interested in the timing of scenes. And so he wasn't communicating the vision, but I think he was visualizing technically, what's it going to take to film? What can I do with the length of this scene? Because he really has a temple in his movies. Mm. And so there was a lot of, I, I noticed in some of the, the rewriting, there was a lot of, Tempo changes. that It wasn't about the scene isn't working. It's too short. Needs more dialogue. Too long because of the story. It just he 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 wanted things modular, I, I guess. And so that there was some, some restructuring of that. I think um, I think that gets down to why the Arata's whole Beirut sequence um, stays the way it is. He saw that he could film that. He, the scene with the Egyptian guy on the beach. Um, I love that scene. I think it's fabulous, um, but it's shot so flipping well. The and that was the thing he wanted. You don't get that at Green Beach with the Marine barracks, and <laughs> and and it's a whole different visual that he didn't really want to do. He liked to keep things intimate, um, and so there was it was always trying to to draw it down into into that. And mm. um, yeah, but but no, like some of the stuff, you know. I think that I don't know. I wasn't there, but in. Um, in Prague when they did the helicopter you know no one wanted to do that he, he 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 forced that thing and that is if people show a clip of the movie it's the scene with the chair like the chair off the you know you want to keep your cover you don't go on a roof and you don't throw chairs <laughs> it works it works in the movie it works real well and that's the clip everyone likes to play uh he, he knew what he was doing and, and and knew where he could push it the other stuff um the stuff in East east berlin is, you know, that stayed, that whole sequence from when he gets off the, when he comes from Vietnam through that whole sequence was straight from the, straight the script. And he knew how he was going to shoot it from the very minute. There was one scene, I don't know if he shot it, he wanted to, but it was Pitt killing Ann Cathcart. There's that, that never made it anywhere, but that was in the shooting script and then it was X'd out at the last minute. Um, right, you know, to, in in, who knows if it was his choice, if it was length, if it was if, if, I don't know, but uh, but otherwise that whole sequence he had a real idea for it, and you can see how it moves. It's really wonderful when you when you look at the page and you look at how he he takes all the clunkiness of a script out of a script. That's what Tony Scott does. You don't really notice the interiors, the exteriors, the scenes. It all seems to 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 swirl. He had such a a, a style like that I, it's uh, terribly best I, I you know his
0: movies were quite good mm-hmm. well I mean, we said this when we had dan Mindell, the cinematographer of the film on the show but just how beautiful it is and even the moments of like sitting in the boardroom people talking to each other which can famously in spy films that we've tackled so many of them it can be <laughs> the just taking the lifeblood out of the film for the five ten minutes you get in the exposition but spy game manages to walk the wire and somehow stick the landing as well. I'm using a lot of metaphor here, but it does a very good job of making that boardroom scene and the multiple boardroom seems very interesting.
2: Yeah. It's, it's uh, that's, you know, it's quite, quite a, uh, a big chunk of the film and they, they did a brilliant job. One thing I was, you know, kept through throughout there's, you know, the, the CIA spy movie headquarters with all the screens and stuff. It's just, that's just not it. You know, when they have an a op center with screens, it's your freaking TV on, on a bunch of things around your head. It's not dark. It's not, it's a lot of paper, a lot of people moving around. Um, it's just not that. And and because the script described it all that way, you know, I think uh, another filmmaker would say, yeah, get rid of that. Let's do the Jerry Bruckheimer thing. You know, like, um, what is that in uh, Black Hawk Down where Sam, Sam Shepard, he's in his trailer and he's got these monitors there's no one that has that room it's silly but it, it looks pretty good really Scott has a nice job with it but because we didn't do that I think Tony was upped for it and his crew um were really up for making this still make it visually interesting you know there's there's a couple of sculptures in that on that set so the set decorators did a good job in that that uh boardroom the um and that's pretty much uh they don't have windows like that, I think that one had a set of windows. The, those rooms don't really have windows at Langley. But even that, the, the, the way that was able to light the room was pretty mm-hmm. good. And the way the camera moved among those people is, is, is really, if you watch it, it's really technically quite brilliant. And it makes it a lot better than just put the camera in, like we do in television. <laughs> we put the camera here, we put it there, and that's your, your, your CIA conference room. You know, because you can't get into the table and in and out of the table there.
0: It's one of my favorite stories. I'm probably misquoting it from the interview with, with Dan about Robert Redford noticing there's a lot of paintings of horses in the room and saying, yes. oh, we need to get rid of those. Why is there so many horses? And it's it's such a, <laughs> a weird thing to notice, but it's perfect. It's exactly right. There shouldn't be all those horse posters.
2: No, I don't know where that came from. And there still is a horse sculpture, but that sculpture is kind of neat. Um, it, that still remained in there. Um, I wasn't on the set for that. That was the name. No, no. Well, I th-
0: that's kind of where I wanted to leave. My next question was about your participation once sort of shooting it begun, because we've had quite a few screenwriters on the show now, and some have stayed through and done sort of touch up rewrites throughout the production until the end when post starts. Were you involved at that point? Or Had you you'd done your changes? You were they were just shooting it now?
2: No, I was I was already working at Paramount on the Night Manager with Sydney Pollack, so that, um, mm-hmm. which and then that started uh, God eight eight years with Sydney. Um, which was the best experience of my professional career was working with him. Um, but no, the um the problem is in screenwriting, and it's why Ed Sydney actually got me into television. Um, if your screenplay and features is good enough, you they don't need you. It's not yours. You, you gotta mm-hmm. launch it. You gotta launch the ship and let the baby go. Um, so there wasn't a lot. They had um, I'm so sorry with, with names, I, I I draw a blank on them. But um, great guy. Who's the guy that uh, uh, did the? Um, <laughs> he did the Alamo. A uh, Texan guy.
1: Oh, John Hancock.
2: John Hancock. John Hancock went went out and and did some work. He did a lot of that because you can't. Redford says I don't want to do this speech. Mm-hmm. You, you can't just cross it out and not do it. You the guild, yep. you have to have a writer there. So John Hancock was there. Um, and now he and I talked a lot because he'd call and go, "Okay, Redford, you know he's sitting in his trailer smoking, saying he doesn't want to smoke." So I don't know what to do, and <laughs> like just I said, well, you know, take the cigarettes out. Why, why, why push that? You know, what do you do? Um, but uh, the uh, uh, so he he was there for a little bit, and I, I I don't know don't know where he he brushed up some stuff. His uh, he has a couple of great lines in in the film that that he did. Um, I thought were good. One. Uh, the one about his uh, his grandmother's horse or the horse don't don't want to shoot a horse. Why would I let you kill a horse? Uh, whatever it was, I liked it quite a bit. That was a John Han John Lee Hancock line. Um, and uh, but no, in in film, the films that I've done and that I've written on, I I not really a lot. With with Spy Game, it ended up Tony got back. He did an assembly. And then he called me uh, to watch it a number of times and work with the editing. There was some story stuff that they just for length couldn't put in. So we had mm-hmm. to rearrange. He goes, how do I even, if I do it the way it's in the script, it will not make sense. So it's, how do we do it? I go, well, if you put the scene with Brad and Catherine here earlier front loaded, then you actually don't need the scene you had, you know? And and so I spent, I don't know, maybe it was three or four people not three or four whole days but three or four different days working with the with him getting it finally together um and uh and and that was but again that was in burbank we interrupt this program to bring you a special report
0: calling all agents keeping the lights on at spyhards hq ain't cheap and frankly nor is feeding the school of attack piranhas so we
1: need your help Roger that, Scott. Only at the Spy Hards Patreon can you gain access to exclusive shows like Agents in the Field, which tackles non-spy films starring your favorite spy icons, and The Debrief, where we channel our inner solitaires and predict how the big spy movie news of today will impact tomorrow. So make like a Treadstone agent and activate your Patreon membership
0: at patreon.com slash today, Cam, Tell the people
1: what we have in our sights this week. Scott, now's a great time to catch up on our May Patreon programming, including reviews of Superman and The Fugitive, plus the latest episode of The Debrief, where we look at the new Mission Impossible trailer and so much more. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy chinks. Was there a deleted scene that just, like, still sticks with you? Like, I wish we could have kept that in.
2: Ooh, um... There, yeah, there was the, the idea of the party for Redford, there actually is a very awkward scene where he's, he's with some of the other old hands that are all looking at him like, we're all next. But it, a lot of, oh, no, the big one was Thailand. There's a whole sequence in Thailand, where Muir is sent, it's just before Bishop heads to China so the the flashbacks are catching up with the story, which so there was a, a bunch of those come to think of it. But he sent by Harker to Thailand to kill Bishop. Mm. And Bishop, um, the other scene the other scene was there's a whole lot to do with that flag. That flag is um, um, the objective correlative, if you go into literary terminology. It's sort of the object that that represents all the emotions. He, who was it? T. S. Eliot wrote about Shakespeare and did a famous treatise that a lot of uh, highbrow writers use and or, or look for is the objective correlative, it's the blood in Macbeth. It's the thing that it is is a thing in itself, but it actually holds all the emotions of the character. So it's a it's like a talisman. That flag had a lot more to do. So the flag exchanges hands between those two guys. Um Arata put in, or maybe it was Hancock, the, the flask. Um you know, is that that wasn't in in my original, but the flag changed hands. He uses the flag in Germany to recruit Bishop because it's the flag Bishop's father served under in Korea. And so, you know, this was from the headquarters where your dad died. Here's the flag. Then, and so that's sort of, he's had that flag the whole time. Um, Then in Thailand, you know, Muir's not going to kill him. He just says, you got to get the fuck out of here. Because you you can't come back. You we're done. Disappear. Do it. You're you're finished. And uh, you know. And and Bishop throws the flag in his face and says, "This is just a lie. This whole thing is a freaking lie." And then we see that maybe it wasn't a lie, and it's it's hung in his office. The scene between the two of them they didn't film it. It 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 left earlier in the in the script. But that's one of my favorite scenes in the script. It it now appears in in my new book, Mirror's Gambit, which is the prequel it's 48 hours before spy game it's sort of like why is he going in there to retire anyway what's the point of that so but yeah that that one i would have liked to have seen on the screen that that was uh, it was a good moment between the two of them and and you know you you tried to replace my father you know you're not my father you know you kind of turned me into the killer
0: right you almost segue me completely perfectly into the next topic i want to bring up which is the books but i did have a final question about spy yeah. game proper which is just finished product now. And you're talking about how the spy game has sort of looked after you over the years. It's been good to you. What's your favorite moment from the the film, the finished product? Well, looking back now, what is your favorite moment?
2: Oh God, that's, uh, I don't, I don't really know. I think I would just say it's, um, oh boy, it's gotta be with, with Bob in, Langley. There's too many, too many of them. I, I do like the stuff with him and um, his, uh, with Gladys. That stuff's good. Yeah, I, I think they played it. The best one is when they get in the elevator and he says, you got something in your teeth. And the reason it's my favorite is because it's exactly how I envisioned it when I wrote it the very first time in the <laughs> very first draft. It was, it, that was seen my imagination exactly perfect, exactly as I imagined so that, that that i quite like um yeah and the other one where he's you know the other stuff i like the quiet moments where he's sitting there among the file boxes with that just look haunted look in his face of the what have i done you know what you know how how do i get out of this you know in the long night um that we have before before the final the final scene
0: hmm. which then leads me on a, a, a wonderful assortment of scenes there but i mentioned the books now you've recently brought out a trilogy the the aiken trilogy sort of expanding the world of of spy game what made you want to go back and
2: revisit this world well you know what as i as i said i originally had written it as a book Hmm. it was sort of going to be my pivot point um it just took me 30 some years to pivot from hollywood and expand into novel writing but when i started i I decided okay i'm going to start writing books now I, i have comfortably enough that I can do it and fail at it. And no one, no, none of my six kids or my grandson will suffer or or my ex-wives or my girlfriend, the, no one will suffer. I can do it. But I thought, you know what? Spy has got IP to it. Mm-hmm. And if I'm, I'm starting out, you know, why not write something? I have the half a book, um, already ready to go. Why not write something that, you know, that's closer to who I am rather than just start and, and create a new, a new a new world, a new set of characters. And over the years, um, I'd been collecting, you know, through my work, uh, through my other work and other spy stuff I was writing through the, the people I close with that are in that world. I collected so many different stories and anecdotes. And like I do, I just kind of cobble all these things together. Um, and i always felt that why the hell you know the one thing that was missing is the the relationship the real point the real ending of the of the film should have been that what bishop says in that scene in thailand um if it turns out that you were behind what happened to elizabeth next time i see you i'll kill you so the whole thing is Muir knows that by saving this guy, he's coming back to kill him. That's what the ending was. They they didn't like it. Whatever. Um, that's why I, I decided. Uh, well, the the books are going to work that way. Um, so what I did was Aiken was a larger character in the script. That the only reason he's not is because it would have been you know a three-hour movie. The, mm-hmm. All the other characters and Harry Duncan and all that. But there was a lot of material that that was left on the on the ground. And then there was the, why is Muir retiring? Well, the first half of that unpublished manuscript was about that. So I took that and, you know, redid that whole first chunk because it was, it wasn't its own book. It was a preamble to the story that we see in Spy Game. I made that into a book. And so it's 48 hours before uh, the events of Spy Game. And the, the idea, the format somewhat similar to the film is... Um, a guy named Charlie March, who was Muir's mentor. So he's retired from the CIA, an old, old dinosaur. He's assassinated. He's murdered. His boat blows up in, uh, you know, in the Florida Keys. Mm -hmm. And the last thing he says before he dies is he mentions Nathan Muir. So the CIA is very worried that, okay, this guy that's known, he's written a famous autobiography about, you know, being a spy. The FBI is going to get on this. Everyone's going to get on this. This guy has too many secrets. He mentioned your name we got to shut up Nathan Muir. We got to get him to confess, confess to the murder. If he didn't murder him, fake the confession, get Mm -hmm. Muir shut up, lock his secrets away, lock it all away. We don't want any of the Cold War stuff to come out. So they send Aiken, who's the uh, general, he's in the general office of general counsel, as a lawyer, they send him to Muir, who just happens to be at his beach house in Florida. It's a little chain from the 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 island house he gets he sells or whatever at, mm. at the end of the movie, but that was a little different in in the way the script was envisioned. Uh, working with those guys now, they're like, God, if you told us all that, we wouldn't have changed so much. I go, don't worry about yeah. it. The movie is the movie. It doesn't matter to me. Um, and so he's sent to get Mirror's confession, lock him down, and get his retirement. The deal is, you no know, no punishment for a crime. We think you killed him. We don't know why. Why would you kill your mentor? And of course he said, I didn't kill him um and um and get him to retire, and so it's the fencing between those two. The other twist of that book, and why Aiken's important, is Aiken was the first guy he recruited before Bishop. Aiken was the starry eyed guy, and Aiken he decided isn't good enough for the field. you know he's I want him to be my lawyer at the CIA that's my guy in the office, and then he goes and gets Tom Bishop. Well, Aiken has. Harbored a grudge for all these years. Tom Bishop got my ticket to the freaking show. And so he will go in there sharpening a knife to take out, you know, I'm gonna take mirror down this guy who I looked up to as a father figure really effed me over. So that's that book. It's the it's the um prelude. Now, if you read that book, the movie it changes everything in the movie. Because you have to remember in the movie, he's lying, right? We we see what the lies he's telling. Well you also have to understand all of what he's telling is a lie. So the stuff that we watch the movie and think is real because it didn't contradict anything that he's, you know, that's moving that plot forward, none of that may be real either. It may have all other meanings and and plots. And that's kind of how the movie sits after the book. So the book will change how you watch the movie, guaranteed. It becomes an entirely different piece. And then the next book, uh, that's Mirrors Gambit, Bishop's Endgame follows Bishop. It, it jumps forward 10 years after Muir is driven away from CIA. He's now an annuitant working um, recruitment at Princeton. He was a pro- professor. And and, and um, so he's, he's looking for recruits and he's teaching mythology. That's his, his gift. And Bishop is, he's gone off the reservation as he tends to do. And he's rogue. No one knows where he is in the killing fields of Kosovo i um, a little bit pissed off. The CIA isn't stopping anything of this ethnic cleansing. So I'm going to try and do, it. you know, he's got a hero. Mm-hmm. He's there. So it's 10 years later. And then, so we follow events there. It, it takes us to Malaysia. That one is basically all, all at once, all of Muir's old networks just go off the grid, vanish all across the globe. No one knows why he's, he's out at Princeton. He's not talking. Um, Harker is panicked. Um, and then they get a coded message from Malaysia, which is, you know, undergoing some, you know, political, there's an election, it's a civil unrest, and it's a guy no one's heard of, it was a very early mirror guy named um, Dan Van Eyck, a Dutch colonial in Malaysia, who says, I know, I know the whole thing. I'll, I want to come in because I have the answer to everything, but I'll only come in to Tom Bishop. So that's that, that story. And that coincides with, if you recall, um, 10 years later, it's 2001. um, It's where 9-11 was planned. The Mm -hmm. Al-Qaeda was planned in, in Malaysia. And as is very weird, they have the whole thing, but the Malaysian Secret Service weren't able to, they photographed a lot of it and videotaped it, but they weren't able to get lips for lip reading. So you knew that they were there, we couldn't read the lips of the guys saying what it is. But so you have sort of the insurgent um, developing war on terror in, in Bishop's endgame, but it's, it's this Malaysia. Um, then the third one is, in, and that's Aiken is unfortunately in that one, he gets his wish to be put in the field, but he's put in the field to shit. We unleash Tom Bishop. Tom Bishop may, may be the cause of all this. You actually got to go kill him. You got to go kill him. And Aiken knows it. I, I go there, he's going to kill me. Right? It's just a suicide. Hmm. So, and then the third book um takes uh, Aiken and Chet, uh, follows Aiken more closely and it and it deals with Cuba in 2002. Um, and it's Aiken now is having to defect to Cuba or he's chosen to defect to Cuba because, you now we have two books worth of characters, but one of Muir's other agents, uh, a woman named Nina Estrada, um, a Cuban who was one of his other networks. She's been kidnapped mirrors out of the picture at that point she's been kidnapped and um they're they've taken her in Cuba he decides to he's in love with her it's, it's books um Aiken goes and defects to Cuba um trading gonna trade every secret he has for her life even though he'll never see her again at least he saves her um so anyway the three books kind of work on a, on a set of themes the first one um which is a lot you know like uh, spy game because it's it's really about young Muir and his mentor Charlie March, mm-hmm. you know told in this interrogation and in present right, same framework right That's about basically a life of lies. All these people are sanctioned, Muir especially, to lie their entire life. You're sanctioned by your government to lie, to lie to everyone, everything you do is deception. And what a life of deception, especially going through the Cold War what that does to your own soul, how that eats you up, because some of these lies are pretty awful things you you did in the name of policy, expediency, or patriotism. Definitely, that's always the starting point. So it's his journey and Aiken's journey in in realizing that, yeah, I was the guy that papered all these operations. I made stuff that was highly illegal, legal. So, Mm. you know, maybe Aiken realizes maybe when, you know, 200 people get killed in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I'm the guy that signed it and allowed us to do that. So maybe I'm just as responsible. The second one then goes, okay, these guys that have lived these, these life, lives of lies, they, they then go into a in Bishop's Endgame. I start looking at, well, okay, so you've lived a life of lie, lies and you're always presenting a false identity. What is your identity? If 90% of your time is being someone else, isn't that who you are? You know, even if you tell yourself, no, I'm, I'm the, uh, the other guy. You don't ever behave as that other guy. You never get it. And so many of these people get so far off onto that. The ones that I've, I've known, many of them don't. Most of them don't. But some of them do. And, and they have a lot of issues they have to deal with about identity. And, um, you know, one of them said, I, I uh, you know, I, I look in the mirror and I think that I was everyone. I was whatever anyone wanted me to be. He used to say we'd, we'd sell people whatever their own personal Disneyland. I was their Disneyland every time. Whatever they wanted, I was that. But I get home and I didn't. I couldn't fast enough rip off the mask to figure out who I was anymore. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so it, it's dealing with that. And then, and then in the third one, it takes the life of lies and false identity, and puts that against information. And it's about a. Uh, I go. I go into the technical side of, of of signals intelligence with the Cuba thing, and it goes into. Um, how a life of lies coupled with false identity, how a spy's primary objective, which is stealing information, how the person that gets information impacts that information. So if everything is coming from a dishonest place in stealing intelligence, how pure is actually that intelligence? How do we know? And it's the difference between human intelligence and electronic intelligence. So anyway, there, there I've been very pleased. I, I ended up writing them throughout COVID and maybe the next year, right? 2021 and um, published them all at once. I uh, decided uh, that I was going to go my own way with that and and publish them myself. Um, And I've done, I've been very happy with how they've done. The reviews have been great. Like I said, it's, it's really, you know, I'll go on Amazon and I'll look at a review and it's someone that I don't even, I wouldn't know but hey, I lived this life and this is exactly what it was. And, and, um, and, and that's pretty gratifying. I, I They've done fairly well and they're quite popular. The um, To kind of brag a little bit, um, Forward Magazine, which is sort of like a Publishers Weekly or Kirkus Reviews, but for independent books, mm-hmm. um, named Muir's Gambit a finalist for Book of the Year for 2022, which usually kind of goes to highbrow
1: literature It's awesome,
2: um, but it's a you know genre book is book of the year i thought that was kind of nice and, and best thrillers uh which is a pretty big review site uh in the thriller space um named mir's gambit the 2022 uh spy thriller of the year so that was kind of nice and that's kept the profile up from there beacon i'm just sorry beacon um came back to me and said they've been very great they said you could use all the stuff in promo and stuff But now it's turned around. And I think I mentioned before, it's, uh, you know, they're doing it. We're going to develop it as a streaming series. So I just finished the last of the scripts on that.
0: Well, that's literally what I was going to ask her. Because first, I was going to say, I I was looking on your website and I noted that there is a a novella coming called Kaleidoscope, which is a spy game novella. And there's also a beginning of a new trilogy called Drought.
2: Yes, that's Kaleidoscope. The first novella is finished, but I got to rewrite it. It. It's gonna. I, I realize I, it's it takes characters that come up at the end of book two and in and very primary. It's really mirrors arch nemesis in the CIA. Well, I'll give it away. It's the guy in the room that doesn't say much who looks like he's from the that's that's mirrors big. The, the um, is he from he's the guy that's sitting there and doesn't say much. I uh, mm. he's not named in the film, right? Uh, but uh, uh anyway, that that's mirrors. Arch enemy in the CIA, a guy named Silas Kingston, and it takes uh, it takes off and follows the threat of that guy. Now he's he's kind of a bad guy, an antagonist in the Aiken trilogy. It's him as it, and his family. It's sort of the soprano set in the CIA. It's he's counterintelligence, and that's what he was in the film. And it follows that. I realize I kind of got to wait before I release that because it's really better if you if you've, read, you've been introduced to his character in, in books. Sure. Through. So so I jumped into just started the research for Drought which is going to be a trilogy of books on Muir. Aiken is the Aiken trilogy and they're all narrated by Aiken. These will be narrated, you know, the the voice and the and the writing's first person from Muir's point of view. It's kind of fun because literally Drought takes begins the opening sentence is him turning the key in his Porsche and driving out of Langley. <laughs> and so right. then so that takes, I have 10 years in between that moment and Bishop's endgame, mm-hmm. or what the hell was he doing? What was he doing? So it follows that, but it also goes back to his own uh, time before, and at the time he recruited Brad Pitt in Vietnam, and it follows Vietnam. The guy, the real Nathan Muir was involved in something in Laos. For the CIA, he was involved in something called Operation Popeye. And Operation Popeye was about weather manipulation. And the CIA worked very hard to change the weather in Southeast Asia to um, flood the rice paddy so they wouldn't have any rice production. And yeah, you can look it up. It's, it, there's there's a lot of open source stuff on Popeye now. But um, what what is interesting? They tested a lot of it in Los Angeles. So um, uh, in 1969, when they did, it created a major major weather problem in, in greater Los Angeles and a number of people drowned and, and it was from the CIA seeding in the clouds. It wasn't a real storm. Hmm. So it's Muir's involvement then in the 60s, but also in that period right after the war. And it's actually about human trafficking, weather and human trafficking. It starts there.
0: Well, you know, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't pitch it, but if you ever want to write in a, a dumb Canadian and a dumb British spy in the background of a scene <laughs> and have us, have us get blown, up, uh, yeah, have us really get blown up or something. Yeah, really dumb. <laughs> uh, you, you'd make my dreams come true. Well, yeah.
2: you'd hurt your other arm, but we'd be fine.
0: Well, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 Even if you like us d- differently, I think I'd get the nod and I'd appreciate it. But, um, I, but we did jump over you mentioned uh, sort of the tv option for the the first trilogy so what's happening with that
2: yeah so what, what's kind of interesting is universal doesn't own spy Game. they distributed it they put in production money but they don't own it okay beacon pictures owns it and i own it what universal had was a a first right of refusal and okay. they yep. refused it a number of times we've tried to reboot it the film uh or remake it and we pitched the television thing and they told Beacon, nah, you know, we're, we're going to keep that in the vault. So Beacon turned around to me and said, and now all they had the rights to do anyway is just remake that original script. It would be like Gus Van Zandt redoing Psycho. Sure.
0: Right. That's
2: all they own. Because, because I own the characters, Universal couldn't make a sequel to Spy Game without buying my rights because they can't have them do stuff that doesn't match what I have unless I let them. Mm-hmm. Um, which they want to do that and pay me to do it. Go with God and, and send me a check. <laughs> happy, my you know, happy for that. But they're not. So Beacon said, "Let's do it as." So the, the the original Beacon has taken a lot of forms over the years, but they have their library and the original C original CFO, I think. Man, no, he was the CEO of Beacon that came in right as I was sort of leaving my association. He's sort of been kind of an angel on my shoulder throughout my career. Always sending me, um, you know, rewrites for actors that, that you know, I, 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 a lot of times have written it's because I don't write for them, that's the secret. I write just, I write me and they like playing me. Um, but you know, some, some actors will, will have a thing, a pet project, something. He's always said stuff, but he's always been my biggest fan. He gave me, they didn't have to give me and allow me to use um, anything from the film Mm-hmm. um t- uh, i spied him they could have probably tried to prevent me from using but they said no go use it use for use pit use any imagery if you want to use clips from the film use them we own it i own it and i love you you're great um well he read the book he, so you know so i did that he calls me he said i just read this book he goes we're not re- going to reboot the movie we're going to do this this is freaking great you should have told me all this stuff before you know, because the movie, we would have made tailored the movie a little closer. Like, don't worry about that. Yeah, I didn't have it all in my head then anyway. Uh, so Muir's Gambit would be the first season. Mm-hmm. Bishop's Game a second season, and Aiken and Check probably two more seasons. It's rather lengthy. Um, however, what's gotten the, and I'm glad it's me, um, the different casting options for Aiken um, and you can picture him in the film. It's a white guy. Um, well, there's been some interest from a, a very high-level uh, female actress mm-hmm. who's who's done a lot of, you, you know her name, I can't say it, but very big, who said, well, I want to do a Spy Game movie. Can you change Akin to female? Mm. I, I can't change my books. <laughs> you know, he's going to stay a, a guy throughout the books. But certainly, so I've, there's that, that pilot's out there for casting as a female. Other thing is, is you know, and as, as tastes have changed and, and we've gotten into, you know, um, everything doesn't have to be white bread and it kind of looks a little funny if it is. So there's a, another version that Beacon's looking at where I've written Aiken is African-American. And what was really fun about, what, what was fun about the female thing is having, oh, I almost said her name, having a woman interrogating Muir. Is great. Mm. Now we don't know if, right. we, if Bob's going to do it or not. He said, "Man, man, man. you know, he's he's wishy washy. He he always wants to see everything, you know, finished, and then he'll make a decision." But having a woman go up against it would be really quite fun, and that script is quite quite a delight. Um, the thing with the black guy is pretty good too, because the CIA in the seventies is not real uh, hospitable to an African American. Nope. and uh, so the, the you just the. I didn't have to even change what's in the book. It's just by virtue of race and time, even though it's the nineties when they're talking about it, it makes it, it gives it another neat subtext. And so then there's the version that's straight from the book. Um, so, but I turned in the last script. Uh, it was kind of, I've never had to do a job like that, where do three, we want to see three mm-hmm. and two. I don't know what they're going to choose, where they're going to go. Um, I'd be kind of, I, I, I don't know if I'd run the show. I'm not sure I really want to be on a set anymore. Um, but certainly it's mine to. It's my show. If I want to do that and stop writing and do that for a while, but I I'd be contracted for all the scripts. I think I'd probably hire a writer's room. I'd like to see what other people could do with my book. It'd probably be a lot more fun. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, but we'll see, it's really just at that germinating thing and, and deciding what cast they're going to and, uh, and then where they set it up not maybe universal you know they're pretty good at they there I, i'd be like you know what big universes come their nose at us forget them screw them like, no, 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 be, keep it in the family we'll probably do it with universal but uh i don't
0: know well i mean that's very exciting it's interesting yeah. that the spy game world may be coming back in a slightly evolved form with a, a different take on 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 akin there which i think will be Fascinating to see. And I think you may have uh, booked your next visit on the show as well. When that's uh, se- <laughs> season do. one's on the air, and we're a press thing, and you, you get like ten minutes with us.
2: <laughs> oh no 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 no! Well, this was great. It was really fun doing this. I liked your. You know, it was fun listening to the, the, to your review because a lot of the stuff you kind of detracted with on the film, I kind of felt the same way. So it was kind of uh, the the one with Chris was really quite enjoyable. I I have to listen to the the other one because I didn't know that you did. Did it uh, with the um, cinematographer. I didn't know that you'd done that.
0: Right. Oh, I'll, I'll pick that over to you. I mean, it, does, oh, it yeah. does make it, it does, it makes my skin crawl just a little bit to know like the writer of something. It was listening to what I thought about it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no,
2: no, no. Oh. <laughs> no, that's really cool. The uh, I once went to, I was invited to Sundance to speak at a, pa- a writer's panel. Sure. I was the only writer there that didn't do indie films. Mm. And I was like the studio guy. And so <laughs> I was young. Uh, I didn't kind of read the room properly. And they said, they got to me and they said, what do you think about studio notes and development hell? You've written a lot of movies and a lot of them haven't been made. you got, no, you know. No, no. I said, well, I got to tell you, when I send out a script as my calling card to get my next job, I don't send out my draft. I send out the one that went through development hell because it's usually better. Well, you could hear a pin drop. And the moderator asked me some questions. I said, no, look, look. If, if I, this is back in the 90s, I said, if I wanted it to be my words or sacrosanct, I'd write books. But I'm mm-hmm. writing for a medium that everyone is involved with. Um, everyone's idea is good. And by the way, when you get criticism, even if the criticism is wrong on the point they're talking about, something didn't work. Mm-hmm. Even if you think that they got it totally wrong, they just didn't see it. Well, why didn't they see it then? Right. And so I learned that very early on in Hollywood, that notes are a good thing because they want to like it. They want to make it. They've spent a lot of money on it. Something isn't working. And it is your job to listen to the criticism and figure it out. Now, criticism on a movie that's finished, it helps with the next one. So it doesn't matter. And, you know, because it's a, it's a medium where I didn't do all, I, I certainly didn't pick the costumes. I didn't film it. I didn't do the dialogue <laughs> polish. I can always just say that wasn't me. <laughs> that was somebody. <laughs> the bad part. That I agree.
0: It wasn't me. the good stuff. The good stuff was Michael. Everything <laughs> yeah. else, like, yeah. Ah, ah, ah. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I I can't let you go just yet. I I have a oh, couple yeah, of fine. questions. I I have to sort of like I. Well, there's one question that we ask everyone. The first question I want to ask Michael. Looking back on your filmography, aside from Spy Game, is there something that you've worked on that you're particularly proud of that you think maybe didn't get the love it should have got, and people should go and check out?
1: Mm. Oh
2: well, um. No, you know, the only the only thing was there's so many scripts, but I was really my all my work and my best scripts have never been made. I was really um, kind of in a rarefied thing. You, you see a lot of my stuff in rewrites of things that I don't have credit on. I spent most of mm-hmm. my you know money making, but I sell a lot of originals. Um, you know, if you watch Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame, the musical, the kids thing,
1: I love that movie.
2: Everything where that changes off the book. That was they bought my live action, which we were going to do with the director who did the mission. What's his name? Is um, it Roland Joffé? Did that? Roland Joffé. Roland Joffé was going to do that. Then it was going to be Lars von Trier, um, and I spent a lot of time in uh, Denmark working on that. Disney had paid more than the, I've been paid for any other script for my live action version. What I never knew is it was really just to pin it down from the others because it was a bidding war to get it. Because, because in those days, they didn't uh, release, um, they didn't tell you what their next animated thing was. If you remember way back in the early 90s, they wouldn't tell you. And so they were close to finishing that movie, um, but the script wasn't working. So they bought this. And while they were doing that, they were just mining my script. And it's kind of fun watching that because I would never get a chance to work on an animated film. And, and I had little kids when that, that came out. And all this stuff where it strays from the Victor Hugo, those are all my scenes. Wow! So that's really, I'm really, really thrilled when I watch that because it's really, it's really kind of magical seeing that. There. The, the live action with uh, Lars von Trier would have been kind of weird and neat too, but who cares? Um, so that one was pretty great. Um, Deep Blue Sea, I don't have a credit on. I did nine drafts of that. And um, a lot of the a lot of the fun moments in that, you know, I go that's me. Um, now here's a good one, Cutthroat Island. So the guys that that rewrote Cutthroat Island for Gina when she yeah. what she did is she mm-hmm. pulled it was Michael Douglas and Gina Davis. She got the rewrite and hired the team of guys. They ended up writing Zorro. Well, they've written a ton of great stuff, but they wrote did Zorro, which was pretty good. Um, but she just changed the two characters. So. What you see Matthew Modine doing was pretty much the girl character. And she was a guy. She was Michael Douglas. So he politely, when the rewrite came in, said, oh, I'm too tired from Romancing the Stone, too. I, I'm going to pass. He was never going to do it and play the girl. Um, and Matthew Modine ended up playing that role. Gina Davis did it. Well, those two writers, all the stuff they threw out ended up, has ended up in so many movies. My sequence is so, like in Zorro, there's that great sequence in the mind. That's straight out of Cutthroat Island. It just never (laughs) was in the movie. So I've I've had that one. Um, uh, When I first did Cutthroat Island, I was under contract to Disney, and I pitched it, because I'd already been working on it, I pitched it as Pirates of the Caribbean, do your ride as a movie. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey Casper said, we are never, ever (laughs) going to do our theme park with our movies. Or maybe it was Eisner who said that. So which was great because I had a very low price tag on it because I was under contract, but they allowed me to, and I, and I made quite a bit of money selling that script. But um, the executive who did it and ultimately did uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean, which I, lo- uh, I love the first one. I, I maybe, I watched the third one and I like that too, but the first one was brilliant, but there's a few scenes in that that were stripped from the original Cutthroat Island, got stripped and sold for junk. All over town. I think those two writers worked on it as well. Um, and so there's there's a lot of movies I'll see and I'll go, oh, there's some more Cutthroat Island showing up. It's, uh...
1: We did a lot of coverage on the 1998 Avengers film, uh-huh. which didn't go particularly well at the box office. And you know, we talked to the writer of that film and how many scenes were pulled out of the original screenplay for that movie and wound up in all sorts of things. Yeah, it's, it's,
2: it does happen. I, I'm delighted by it. I, I always like it. I got paid. I don't really care. My my I, I'm the one guy in Hollywood that gets paid first, and it doesn't matter what happens. So I'm always happy. It is kind of fun. I don't know how he reacted, but it is kind of fun seeing him show up in other places. and go like, I knew that was a good scene. You yeah, know, I knew that was good.
1: Yeah, I think he he seemed amused by it. Yeah, for sure he did. Yeah, yeah,
2: it, it, yeah. It's kind of fun. I kind of like it. Um, and uh, Cypher was a pretty good one too. I got to work with um, my executive producer was Whalen Green, who w- wrote The Wild Bunch, and um, and he came on uh, to shepherd my because that was my first script. Shepherd my um, final draft on that, and I learned a ton with him mm. and and, uh, and uh, writing that kind of hard hard action, harder action, um and suspense. And that was rather fun. I'm I'm fond of that movie. That that movie nowadays spy game. Mo- most everyone's now seen spy game. But it used to be, you know, it didn't matter what I'd worked on, everyone had seen Sniper. Yeah. Or or one of the you know nine nine versions. Um so that was that. I I, you know it uh you know, I've written I've written a great I wrote a great movie for Harrison Ford. Um that they never made, which was, which was ter- a terrific film for him. I've written, I've really been very blessed. I worked with Wolfgang Peterson on three movies we never made. Mm. Um, and a couple TV. Well, we did do the agency. There was another series that, that we did just before he died that would passed away. Um, and that was fun. But I, I, I really, in, in my Hollywood career had the opportunity to work with a lot of real giants that, that, uh, you know, they just they're just not like that anymore. And and you know, from Barry Levinson on, I, I really um got to work with a lot of those uh directors, those old directors. You know, I'll watch some of these movies they make and I'll go, God, you know, I guess I was working with, you know, like the um the Godfather thing they did, um the miniseries. And it's like yeah. I knew all those people. I go, am I that old? And I, you know, I'm not 60 yet, but when I started out, all those people were sort of at the end of their careers, and I was selling to all of them. So um, I worked with a lot of interesting people. Roman Polanski, I didn't work with, but he almost did. We did, um, I didn't work on the script, I was producing on um, Les Miserables, um, uh, Alfonso Cron did. And my partner uh, in my company did that one. And, and, and that brought us, uh, for a while, that was going to be um, Roman Polanski, and that was quite interesting. He, he was an interesting guy, um, and so that—that's kind of more than my scripts because I—I've written a hundred, I've written a hundred features and, and mm-hmm. dozens and dozens of pilots. So for me, it's—it's it's always the writing, you know. And and, and the lucky thing is, is—is is they always hire me. They—they—they they, they like what I do and how I do it, you know. I maybe tend to write stuff that uh, gets people excited on the creative side and makes studios go, "This is just too flipping expensive. You know, we're, <laughs> we're not doing this." Yeah. Yeah, I don't
0: know. Well, it, the usual question we end with, I feel like it probably needs a secondary question, so this is a double-bill final question for you. Uh-huh. Firstly, Michael Frostbeckner, what is your favorite spy novel
2: of all time? Oh, you know what it is? Uh, it's oh, it's a Le Carre book, and there's there's a couple, but... I was so close. I worked on the night manager for five years. So I was close to that and it was my favorite, but I worked on it too long. Um, I think he have one called the, um, what's it? I think a perfect spy is probably, probably my very favorite of, of his. That's my favorite spy novel. Um, that one, um, or the secret pilgrim, which is short stories rather. Um, hmm. those are probably my two very favorites and, uh, you got to stick with
1: that. Nice.
0: Part one, great. And then part two, and this is the final question now. What is your favorite spy movie of all time?
2: Ooh. Probably there'd be two. And one, one would be more an action movie. The one I grew up with that really got me into it all probably was Guns of Navarone. I was Ooh, clean. That, yeah. that i i watched with my dad it'd be on tv every year and since i, I as long as i can remember we've watched that every year um and that really got me interested in in the espionage and secret missions and that sort of thing but probably the spy who came in from the cold is is pretty close to perfect and then the smiley's people the bbc did with alec guinness mm-hmm. it's not really a movie right. it's a zillion hours but that's awfully brilliant those are my favorites.
0: I think that's the first mention of Guns of Navarone we've had on the uh, on our, with our interviews, and that, that's uh, that's pretty cool. I think so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: You know what? It's it's worth if I guess it's probably uh you can probably watch it this way. They redid it. This is before DVDs, but they re uh, released it in the full version in that weird seventy millimeter cinema, the, the weird one that they could never get on TV or on VHS. So they panned and scanned. All of those. So there's a lot of the camera going when they're talking, the camera's panning and scanning right on TV. If you see the movie, it was it was originally done where the camera's not moving. There's that the, there's a silence to that movie and a stillness that encapsulates sort of the feeling of that big rock throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. It's it's brilliant. I, I was able to see it at the Cinerama Dome in the original version. And that really it, it changes the movie. Go, oh, this isn't as, as corny as I thought. This is a pretty pretty spectacular. This scene with Gregory Peck and David Niven, where they gotta shoot the girl, one of my all-time favorite, one of my all-time favorite scenes.
1: I know they just put it out on 4K, I actually need yeah. to ch- check out that transfer, see how it l- holds up, yeah.
2: Yeah, see if they did it, in the, it's, it's a very broad letterbox, it's it's kind of mm-hmm. like Patton, where it's that, I think, they, it's not the same camera setup, but but it was a weird thing they used maybe two or three times, and decided we're going to go with a different format. The patent one is they only used that one time. The super seventy millimeter, I think maybe Quentin Tarantino pulled it out for his last movie. He used those cameras.
0: That wouldn't surprise me. He likes a good deep cut spy film. He uh, yeah, he knows yeah, his and, stuff.
2: And uh... well, I
0: I I I all I have to say is a massive thank you from Cam and I, uh, Michael, for taking mm-hmm. the time to talk to us today, to take us through the nuts and bolts of Spy Game. I'm so glad you could take the time
1: to talk to us.
2: Oh, I, I this was an absolute thrill. I've been looking forward to it for weeks. So thank you. It was really quite fun and I love your show.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much. And yes, absolute joy. Thank you.
2: Fantastic. All right. We'll talk soon.
1: There you go, folks. That was our chat with Mr.
0: Michael Frost Beckner. Firstly, I want to thank Michael for taking the time once again for speaking to us. What a legend. And what a ton of insight into not only the creation of Spy Game, but sort of his connection to the world of spies we didn't know any of that stuff going into it that was fun
1: yeah no kidding and i mean it's also someone who's lived in that world for a long time you know obviously having the initial kernel of the idea that became the movie spy game but then in the years since writing novels based in that world you really got a sense through that interview just how much he has internalized about this world Mm -hmm. and how much of just the nuts and bolts still stick with him i mean This was like a clinic in terms of um, the process of carrying a screenplay from idea to fruition.
0: Yeah, we've been very blessed on the show. We were speaking to screenwriters in the past and had this sort of almost like a film school Hmm. approach. And I, I think a lot of people, if you're looking at being a screenwriter, this is a good interview to listen to just to sort of learn the real how the sausage is made when it comes to getting a screenplay made.
1: Yeah, no kidding. And I mean... I really was interested in hearing him talk about the evolution of this film um, from when he initially was pitching, it was picked up, and then working through a different director in Mike Van Diem. I thought Mm -hmm. all that stuff was interesting. We included that information with the backstory when we reviewed the uh, movie on the show. But to actually hear him talk about what was actually the shape of the movie at the time. Because I think when I had my notes, I basically said... There was battles behind the scenes in terms of, like, the scale of the movie. Mm -hmm. And obviously the movie that wound up with Tony Scott, fairly large-scale espionage film, whereas you get the sense, like, there was smaller versions of this. And I loved how he was able to explain exactly what Mike Van Diem was going for. And then also the other credited screenwriter, um, David Arada, what he was contributing as well.
0: Yeah, it definitely sounds like Mike Van Diem's idea was not exactly in sync with what Michael wanted, being his idea in the first place. It definitely seems like that would have been a bit of an out there idea of these two guys sitting in a cupboard listening to someone's conversation. I'm pretty sure I've seen a film like that before,
1: but it's not as riveting as Spy Game. I just kept thinking of All the Old Knives, which was the movie we tackled with um, Chris Pine and Way Newton. I, I often don't think of that film. I don't really that much either, but when he was describing that alternate version of Spy Game, I was thinking of just a whole espionage movie basically set at a table. Yeah, that's true. I suppose from that side of things, like the
0: uh, round the table chit chat that Spy Game does feature, I guess it's just a whole film of that with just two people.
1: Yeah, but that really feels like a play to me than a film. Yeah. Um, I I'd be curious to see like, because it would be a challenge for a filmmaker, right? Like, you mm-hmm. know, you think of like. Uh, a movie, say like *Buried*, the Ryan Reynolds film in the coffin, and like that movie is really well directed and it makes it feel lively. It doesn't feel like you're trapped in just this one location. So, like, if you hand two people in a room listening to audio and let Tony Scott convey that in his style, maybe it's really electric. Maybe I I don't think I would find much excitement in in that
0: particular film but i've been proven wrong in the past frequently in fact on this show i am quite the idiot so maybe it would be a a really great show maybe that version is out there someday and may come to fruition maybe it's actually on our list and we haven't watched it yet
1: yeah i mean the one thing i'll say with like spy game i'm very happy with the version we got i'm not saying (laughs) i need that early iteration of spy game but when i look at how tony scott shoots those boardroom scenes um, you know, where it's just guys around a table. He makes it pretty energetic. So I do think he probably could have pulled something off small scale. I agree. I agree. And and something I want to just bring up, I have
0: two points, really. Firstly, is the original idea of it being a Paul Newman, Robert Redford two-hander. Yeah. With Paul Newman playing the Redford part and Redford playing the Brad Pitt part. Obviously, there's an age gap there, but it's very different ages to what we got in the final film because newman still would have been quite up there by the time he did this film
1: yeah i was actually surprised by that and also just kind of like scratching my head in terms of that age difference between robert redford and brad pitt but i mean it is um you know it is kind of a bummer i would have loved another teaming of newman and redford they were such an iconic pair and i would have been very happy to see it but weren't they in the uh in the sting together they were in the Sting, Butch Cassidy, and the Sundance Kid as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There's something off to me about
0: 2001 Robert Redford playing a spry young agent, <laughs> and they didn't have the de aging software in those days either. No, they did not. And uh, if if X Men Three has anything to say about it, they definitely didn't have it for quite some time.
1: But I do wonder if the two of them are more like closely confined to a room or something like that. Mm. You have it more of a sense that like. Robert Redford's been in the field for a long time and the relationship is just different.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I mean, I, trust me, seeing those two together in The Sting is uh, the only two films you mentioned is the one I've seen and they were great together. So I would not say no to seeing them two together. And also, Newman in another spy movie would not be a
1: problem with me. No, no, we've only got, like, I guess, what, Torn Curtain, The Prize, and then The Macintosh Man. So, uh... You know, none of those three are really like uh, home run, all time iconic spy classics. So maybe a fourth go would have uh, benefited Paul Newman. Well, it did give us one of our favorite gifts of all time: the Macintosh Man, of course, the diving off the boat. Yeah. You know?
0: mm, mm. uh, the other thing I wanted to make mention of is that little bit of trivia that we dropped in our review last year about Brad Pitt choosing this over Born Identity. Yeah, and how. Michael only heard that through our review and was quite stunned by it, but he believed it to be true. So I, I quite liked it. Uh, he was
1: surprised by that and uh, <laughs> it is most likely true. I quite like that. Yeah, that was a fun little bit there. And I mean, I also thought it was just interesting hearing him talk about his novels that he has written. One thing I thought, though, was particularly interesting, though, is just writing that trilogy around the character of Robert Aiken, who mm-hmm. is a pretty small role in the movie. And when I was doing my research, that actually really surprised me that he'd built it around that character. And it just shows you someone who sees the potential for expanding on this world. Well, that makes complete sense to me in that sense,
0: because there was so little about Aiken on the page. It, it allows the most amount of expansion. There's yeah. no canon to break in a sense. So it it allowed him to talk about what he wanted and make up a new story. Whereas, you know, like the the lead characters, the Brad Pitt and the Robert Redford chaps, both have some backstory basically fleshed out in the film. But yeah, I I, I love that idea. And obviously in the next trilogy that's coming out, they'll be focusing on Robert Redford's character. So I think, you know, great, 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 great stuff. And also we learned that there is potentially a TV show version of these
1: books in the works. And Some talk of Robert Redford coming back, question mark? Sounds like there's a lot of options on the table. And I think one of the things about Spy Game, it falls right into that type of IP they love to turn into TV shows. Mm -hmm. Where they're memorable movies, but they aren't necessarily like the biggest of biggest blockbusters. It's movies that everyone remembers and enjoyed but ones that there's plenty of room to expand upon. I think of the movie Limitless with Bradley Cooper, which was turned into a TV show some time back. I think it it didn't last a long time, but it was kind of, it fell perfectly in that sort of type of movie they love to adapt into to a TV show. Something where it has a great concept that you can expand upon. And there's a lot you can do here. And I also think there's a lot of room for creativity and to try different things. I don't think people will be overly precious about it.
0: Are you saying its run
1: was limited oh yes in the case of limitless yes
0: yes 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 and, and to be fair it's all to play for you, you think there's a lot of these sort of spy shows on at the moment on netflix amazon prime apple tv plus you know you've got slow horses i think special agent or something like just started on netflix as well you've got the jack ryan show on amazon prime there's a lot of these sort of high caliber spy tv shows out there at the moment just uh don't make it like true lies
1: yeah, and I mean the movie Spy Game is a you know a two-hour story, mm-hmm. and to turn that into a TV show, a lot of shows I find can feel really stretched out nowadays. A lot of the seasons that you and I um, watch, but I actually think there's a lot of room to play with this world. You know, you look yeah. at a Robert Aiken trilogy. There are side characters I would be really interested in seeing expanded on a TV show. Go in different directions, different types of missions. What happens when some missions go wrong? I just think there's endless opportunities for things you could do with a spy game TV show. And to be fair, Spy Game does a lot of like time jumping with flashbacks and stuff like that.
0: There's also plenty of scope to flesh out the in between moments that happened, you know, within the film that we don't see, as well as expanding afterwards. And Spy Game was set slightly in the past for a portion of it, so. There's a lot of scope with that TV show. And also, there's been a gap of 20 years since the film came out. And now, they've also got to fill that gap in too.
1: Yeah. And one of you know my quibbles with the movie was that it didn't feel like they were giving enough in terms of the female mm-hmm. uh, co-star in that movie, that, that character and the relationship with Brad Pitt. TV show, you've got far more time. You could really, I think, make that one work even better.
0: I could definitely see a modern version of this show with the female lead having a more active role in the show Mm. and a more fleshed out backstory because she is kind of left behind in spy game which again was a detriment i sort of a minus mark i had for it too but i mean overall cam is there any notes you had from the interview
1: well i will just say on a side note it was fun to hear a few little details about cutthroat island a movie that i don't know that a lot of people revisit cutthroat island these days but for me, at my age, like I just remember how much there was going on in terms of the release of that movie. Like there was sure. all, so much news written about it. I definitely was watching it. I don't think I saw it in theaters. I saw it the second it hit home video. Mm-hmm. But like *Cutthroat Island* was a very noisy movie, and so just to hear him talk about the process, you know, when you look at the number of writing credits on that movie on IMDb, it's uh, pretty significant. And to hear his input on his version and just kind of where it was at the time he was working on it. Very interesting to me. And I mean, we probably are going to put the video out from this interview, unless you guys really want to see it and then
0: let us know. But to be fair, right behind Michael the entire time was a poster of Cutthroat Island.
1: So it's still a script, maybe not film, that he
0: holds near and dear
1: to his heart. I'm sure there's an archive somewhere of all the various drafts of Cutthroat Island, and I'm sure that there is genius there. Yes, probably more at the Michael stage. Hmm so
0: yes that was our chat with mr michael frost beckner what a start what a champ and it's nice to know that he enjoys the show and we hope you did too but cam the question goes to you sir what are we talking about next week
1: yes we are looking at a pretty notorious movie um i mentioned you know a few minutes ago you know that cutthroat island was a very noisy movie when it came out in 1995. We are going to talk about a movie from the 1980s that also caused a lot of noise. We're going to look at the 1987 espionage comedy Ishtar with Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman.
0: Yes, I don't know anything about this film except that it's about two hacks getting involved in a spy plot, which uh, sounds like us a lot. It does, actually. Yes, very accurate. Although we sing a little bit less. Uh, And that's probably for the best. Although I haven't seen the film, so maybe they're just as bad as we would be. Yeah, I guess we'll find out about that. Yeah, I guess we will. But there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out Ishtar and join us next week. If you like what you heard on this interview, please consider leaving us a five star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, Operation Dinner Out is officially a go.